Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 97, Revelation. Just and true are your ways. And in this episode, believe it or not, we are going to tackle an entire chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, I'll give you a second to pick your jaw up off the floor. I know that sounds like a shock considering the incredibly long time we've taken to get through the book, but just to bring you up to speed, chapter 15 in Revelation is only eight verses long, and so that's probably the most realistic explanation of why we're going to get through it in just one episode. But nonetheless, I'm excited for this episode um, because we're going to dive right into the heart of the character of God and something that we have been looking toward for quite some time in terms of his judgment, his righteous judgment, and his justice. And we're going to take a look at what those terms mean. Look back into the Old Testament where John is pulling from to give us the descriptions of the Lord God, the Almighty, as he does in chapter 15. And then to tie together some connections again about the way the Lord brought his justice and brought his judgment in the person of Jesus and what relationship we need to understand that has with the way the Lord is ultimately going to bring the same justice and judgment. And so I am excited to get into this with you. Let's just jump right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation chapter 15 in its entirety. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, right off the bat, in the very first verse that we read there, John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. And this other sign that he's referring to takes us back actually to chapter 12, where we saw that vision of the heavenly woman and the dragon who wars against her and her child. And if you remember back in that episode, particularly the Christian story retold, we talked a lot about the Christian imagination being reimagining reality through this sign that John is given. And so we're instantly connected again now um, in the very next section of Revelation, this being chapters 15 and 16. Um, we looked at in, in the, you know, the book of Revelation from the, the end, rather, from seven perspectives. And this is the very next perspective. Chapters 12 to 14 was a view. Chapters 15 and 16 is a view. And John is just picking up on this idea. Here's another 
sign. And the idea with signs, uh, our word for sign, um, it, it shared with our word for significant and, um, you know, the first four letters in the word significant. And there's something uh, pointing some significant aspect of an event or of an, of an occurrence of some kind that's pointing us to a deeper and a greater reality. And the book of John, for example, is filled with all sorts of signs. And we looked at this. I posted a sermon that I preached on Jesus turning the water into wine, which John tells us is the first of his signs. And, you know, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is a sign. And Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is, is arguably the, the seventh and final sign. Things that Jesus does, things that Jesus says that are pointers to some deeper, greater reality. And the, the, the Bible does this a lot. Of course, Revelation does this probably more than any book. But what we're grasping at is John is about to see some thing. He's going to see some image. And what I want to try to do in this episode is to, to try to tie a lot of things together, things that we've been looking at so far and um, things that, that, are, that are yet to come in the book. But what I want to do kind of to, to begin is to just point out the title. Um, I, I put it in quotation marks because I just pulled this title right out of the passage itself. Um, it comes from verse three, just and true are your ways. And this passage here, really, as these bull judgments, these plagues are about to be unleashed, we're told that the wrath of God with these plagues is finished. So this this coming third cycle, not the seals, not the trumpets, but these coming bowls are this final one-to-one correlation, a full, complete picture of the coming judgment of God. And yet the way Revelation describes it is just and true are your ways. And it's interesting because in in Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, verse four, we read the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Well, that's kind of the exact same words that John is using here. In fact, in verses three and four, um, great and amazing are your deeds, comes straight out of Exodus chapter 15. Just and true are your ways, comes from Deuteronomy 32. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? That's almost a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 10. For you alone are holy. That's coming from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. And then the way this ends, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a straight up quote from Psalm 98. And and I'd actually like to read for you just a brief section of Psalm 98 because it sounds eerily similar to this song that is being sung by the saints who are standing next to the one on the throne. And and Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
Now, the focus of Revelation chapter 15 is on the Lord's character. It's on his righteousness. It's on his justice. It's on the fact that his ways are perfect. And I want you to, I, to identify here that, that his ways are just and true. It's not just that he is just and true. It is the ways in which he seeks to carry out justice and truth that are being exalted here. And I just have to let you know, I'm going to publish this episode on October the 1st, so I'm not sure what time you will listen to this. You might listen to them in real time. You might listen to them several weeks or months after the fact. But I am recording it today for me is September 30th, and it is the day right after the presidential, the first presidential debate of 2020. And if you had the opportunity, I'm not necessarily going to say if you had the privilege of watching that, because I'm not sure that was a privilege. Um, But if you had the opportunity to watch that debate, um, you know that throughout the debate, aside from the um, massive interruptions and the um, belittling of one party to the next and, and, and vice versa, a lot of statements such as that's not true and that is a lie were, were tossed back and forth um, dismissively, um, aggressively, uh, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Um, and it's, it's crazy when you're trying to have a debate, which I really think we might do better to just scrap the word debate um, from our vocabulary, at least as it relates to presidential um, interactions, because they're not debates. They, they used to be several uh, decades ago, but they are no longer debates, sadly. Um, but what we're trying to listen for is the truth. And while truth is never something that is fully graspable by any one person, um, our current president has made the world of, well, that's fake news. Um, he's made that just a, a new you know, catchphrase. It's just a new slogan. And um, that's really neither here nor there. And, and I'm not, don't really mind so much. But, but what I wonder and, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to draw our attention to here is that it does get a little frustrating when you really don't know what's true, what's not, what's really going on, what isn't. Very blunt, very direct questions were posed to both candidates looking for very specific, very direct answers, and those answers weren't given. So we are left looking for the truth. We're left wondering what is just, what is right, what is true, what is going to accomplish good things in this country going forward. And oftentimes I I watch these things sort of from a, from a distance, um, a lot of the policies and, and various things that are being discussed, sometimes I'm just sort of this casual observer, but I'm starting to realize more and more that many, many people do not look at these presidential debates in the same way. Um, real, serious discussions are being had at a political level that really, truly affect people um, on the earth in a way that is harsh for some of them, a way that is distant um, for others. And when Psalm 98 says that we're praising the Lord because he comes to judge the earth, 
He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98 is giving us a reason to believe that the nations will be glad when a truly just judge comes to balance the scales. Now, I am a white evangelical Christian, you know, male. Um, I'm starting to wonder now if that name evangelical is a helpful term or not. Um, It certainly comes with an exorbitant amount of baggage, but I am a white Christian male. Let's just put it in those terms. And so I don't often look at the conversation regarding the Lord's coming to judge with righteousness. I, I remember growing up and I used to think, well, I mean, you know, I would have taken my strong, naive, Calvinistic position that I used to hold, um, which would say, well, nobody wants God to judge them with righteousness or we're just all going to hell. And I kind of glossed over that thinking, well, no, what God really will bring people is judgment and wrath and hell. And so what we want is for God to be merciful, but one day that mercy is going to run out. I mean, that's how I used to articulate this. And in recent months and in recent years, I've begun to have my eyes opened quite a bit to the fact that there are large portions of people in this world, not in my little middle, upper class, white, privileged American position vantage point, but rather people who live in my own country, who live in my own county, who do not view reality this way, who have been have had injustices committed against them, who are a business owner and have had a customer cheat them out of something that they need to be paid and never receive payment and had to figure out a way to make ends meet and to still pay his employees even though the money that came in never came. Or someone else, um, I mean, the New Testament is filled with examples of times where the rich and the powerful overlooked the poor and the, you know, the widows and the orphans and these people truly crying out for justice, the Lord's coming in justice is good news to them. You know, if a widow has her purse stolen and since nobody is there to plead for her on her behalf, she can do nothing. Whatever was in that purse is gone. A family's evicted by their home by a landlord who thinks that he can get more rent from somebody else. What are they supposed to do? That's unjust. They entered into an agreement with the landlord and he's broken the contract. Why? Because more money looks better to him. You know, somebody who has his eye on the uh, on on getting an advantage, he's, he accuses his work colleague of cheating him. And though nothing's been done about it, the other colleague seemed inclined to believe the charge. And so this guy's out. I mean, you listen to stories and if you really listen to them and we really enter in solidarity, counterintuitive solidarity maybe with those who are truly suffering, then this message of the Lord coming in justice, the Lord coming in judgment takes on a very different flair, very different um, uh, presence than when we are just saying, well, we don't want God to come in justice. That's not gonna do us any good. Actually, the Lord only comes in justice and in righteousness, and in truth. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 
in John 14, what he means is that he does speak the truth, but he also embodies the truth and the way in which he embodies that truth and the life he proclaims and the life he introduces people into who claim to follow his way of being the truth. All of it works in tandem. And so here we have this sign, and we know that there are people, there's a sea of glass mingled with fire, we're told in verse 2 of, of Revelation 15. And we, we've seen this sea of glass before. It, it shows up in Revelation chapter 4. I'm looking here through my notes. There it is. It says, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, well, here we see this sea of glass mingled with fire. So somehow there's this, there's this super still, calm glass sea that is somewhat believed to be the firmament that separates the heavens from the earth. There is somehow the Lord's throne is seated on this perfectly still, clear sea of glass. And oftentimes throughout scripture, the sea was spoken about as a place of chaos and a place that needed to be contained and needed to be had order brought to it. And here we see the Lord seated on a throne, completely surrounded by a very calm, glassy sea, indicating where the Lord reigns and how the Lord rules. There is perfect peace and perfect rest. Interestingly enough, we're told in Revelation 15 too that this sea of glass is mingled with fire. And it's an interesting concept, but I think it takes us back to Revelation chapter 8 where we're told that another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What am I getting at here? Here's what I'm getting at. The sea of glass where the Lord reigns and is in perfect peace mingled with fire is an introduction into the prayers of the saints the cry for deliverance of the Lord's people asking for the Lord to bring his justice and to bring his truth to bear on the unrighteousness and the wickedness of this world, some of which has directly affected them and has unjustly harmed them, the Lord introduces their prayers for his righteousness and for his presence. He brings that into his presence. And from that space... He throws his judgment down to the earth. And we're told in Revelation 8, 5, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the same kind of image we've looked at several times now in the podcast that is coming directly from the presence of the Lord. It's from chapter four, where these types of rumblings and flashes of lightning are just the realities that emanate from the presence of the Lord on the throne. And in chapter eight, the prayers of the saints are being brought into that picture so that the Lord's judgments, the Lord's justice is in accord with his people not seeking to bring about judgment on their own, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay then his faithful followers' belief in that truth means that they cry to him to bring about justice. And his justice, in response to their prayers, is the bringing of just and true ways to the earth 
in solidarity with his people's prayers. This is exactly what we read in chapter 5 in Revelation when he, when he takes the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in chapter 5, you've got these four living creatures and 24 elders holding harps. In chapter 15, the saints themselves are the ones holding the harps. But remember in chapter 6 of Revelation, when the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is the question, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. This is the same kind of idea just and true, right? That we're focusing in here in Revelation 15, but the cry of the martyrs under the altar, the same altar that we will later see the prayers of the saints being raised up to God and then resulting in his just and true ways of judgment being carried out on the earth. Now, the reason why this is so important is because what we've been looking for so far is, okay, the saints are going to play a part in this. But there's going to come a point where those in the world are still so hard-hearted, they are not going to see that the ways of the Lamb, as embodied by his saints, is enough to persuade them to repent and turn from their wickedness. We have to give that a try first, which is why... Each of these martyrs was given a white robe in chapter six and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there is an embodying opportunity for the saints who continually offer up prayers that the Lord would bring his justice, that the Lord would bring his judgment. And we're waiting on that day. We're waiting on that day, the Lord here, by receiving their prayers, the sea of glass mingled with fire. It's similar, I think, to Psalm 18, where it says, where David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. And we're told as that psalm goes on that the Lord tears open the heavens and he comes down riding on a cherub and coals of fire are flying out of his nostrils. He is coming in judgment in response to his people's cries for help. And that's precisely what's happening in this passage. In chapter 15, this is hope filled for a church, right? Who has successfully withstood the temptations and or the onslaught of the beast. And they're identified this way. John sees what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing a new song. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. Now this is fascinating to me and I don't want you to miss this because if you do, um, you're, you're not going to understand several more things that are coming, particularly in chapter 16. John, this is the most direct line that John has taken so far to draw our attention back 
to the Exodus. He straight up says they sing the song of Moses. Now, let me give you just a brief example of the song of Moses. Um, It takes place in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And we've looked at this before regarding how the Lord's judgment works and how Pharaoh, um, you know, had his own wickedness and his own greed and his own lust for power turned back on his own head and he drove himself into the Red Sea, but then the people rejoice and praise the Lord for having thrown Pharaoh into the sea. And I do, in fact, think that the Lord's judgment is often the most just and the most true when he turns the wickedness of the wicked onto their own heads. He a lot, There's a deep sense of satisfaction that we experience when the wicked get to taste their own medicine. And I do, in fact, think that's what Jesus is coming, is is offering us is is an opportunity not to have that be our fate, but for those who reject Jesus's offer, it will be their fate nonetheless. But in Exodus 15, verse nine, it says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand, shall destroy them. Now we've connected already that this is Pharaoh, okay? This is, he says, the enemy says, well, guess what? Caesar is the new Pharaoh. Rome is the new Egypt. And John has made that connection for us several times in the book and he's making it explicit here by identifying that these people who are standing beside the the Lord himself um, are singing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. But go back to Exodus 15 in verse 10, it says, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who indeed, right? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And don't forget, in chapter 13, right when the beast from the sea was being introduced, the words on the lips of the nations was, who is like the beast? And you and I are meant to read that statement, that question rather, as a contra statement from, from Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And what do the, what do the, um, does the dragon convince the world to believe about the beast? Who is like the beast? Look how great he is. And John is at pains to make sure that his own Christian followers, his own listeners and his own readers and recipients of this letter do not fall victim to that mistake. Those in the end who are singing this song of Moses and this song of the lamb are those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, not given in to the propaganda of something that is not Jesus-centered in the way it chooses to exercise its rule and lordship over the world. This is in reality for Christians to know that our faithfulness to the Lamb and following the same path that he followed will not result in... in um, um, this, this, this glory and honor um, right in the moment, but that we are longing for the day when the Lord himself will make all things right. And it's important that we understand this.
I came across a book several years ago called Generous Justice by Tim Keller, and it is an outstanding little read. I would encourage you to pick it up if you've never never uh, read the book, or even if you have, just to, to flip back through it. But I, I did want to bring together two really great working definitions that Keller gives us of both what justice and what righteousness are. And in the passage that we looked at in Revelation 15 that we're looking at right now, rather, in verse 3, we see just and true are your ways. And then in verse 4, the reasons why the nations will come and worship the Lord is because his righteous acts have been revealed. And Keller does a really good job working with mishpat and um, tzedakah, uh, the, the, the Hebrew words there for justice and righteousness. And justice, according to the Bible, and according to Keller here, um, is simply giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And I think this definition is very helpful, giving people what they are due. Now, it's not up to us precisely to determine what people are due. And this is what gets us into trouble because many of us like to take that ownership onto ourselves explicitly and decide that because we know, you know what's best for, for people, then we'll just go ahead and bring that out all by ourselves. And of course, the Lord wants us to, to trust him that he is in fact going to bring true justice to the world, what people are due and giving them that. Righteousness, however, is a, is a little bit different. Right, righteousness refers to a life of right relationships. Now, Keller focuses in talking specifically about our version of righteousness. So let me read that definition and then I'll talk about what it means for the Lord to be righteous. But the righteous are those who are right with God and therefore are committed to putting right all other relationships in life. And so we use the phrase oftentimes, you know, to do right by someone. So as a father, you know, we would act in a particular way. As a friend, to do right by my friend would be to treat him as my equal. To do right as a father, do right by my children would mean to care for them, to protect them, to critique them, to discipline them when is, when is necessary. But for a judge to do this, to act as a judge in this way is to do right as a judge. So the judge himself has multiple things going on. He's got a victim somewhere in here. Someone has been treated unjustly. And then he has another person who has actually committed the injustice. So, um, and then there may be a whole host of other, you know, collaborators in there and, and co-conspirators and you never know what it is. And so a wise judge is one who, who can analyze what is actually happening and dole out righteousness. So when we're told in verse 4 of, of Revelation 15 that his righteous acts have been revealed, you know, all through the gospel of John, John is at pains to make us realize that the one true God and his ways have been revealed to the world in the person of Jesus. And it's not coincidental that when, the, when those standing around the throne sing the song of Moses, they also sing the song of the Lamb. Because in the book of Exodus, the Lord's deliverance of his people was in response to their cries of oppression. So the Lord judged the economic brokenness and the economic oppression of Egypt's system, which was creating victims out of the Israelites. 
So the Lord's coming in righteousness to judge Israel, or I'm sorry, to judge Egypt was simultaneously his salvation of Israel. He was declaring by the action of judging Egypt's system that this is not the way the world was meant to be ruled. People's lives are lost when you rule the world this way. This is not the way it will be. The people's song in chapter 15 of Exodus was all about the Lord delivering them. It wasn't about, thus that song had Pharaoh still been alive. Nobody in Egypt was singing that song because they were on the wrong side of justice. So the Lord's coming to them looked terrifying and destructive. The Lord's coming to Israel didn't look the same way. And I think Jesus does this all the time in the gospels. For Jesus to kneel down beside a woman caught in adultery is to ruffle the feathers of the religious elite who brought her to him. For Jesus to show that he has compassion and care for tax collectors and sinners is to draw the attention of the Pharisees who cannot fathom a man who claims to be from God spending any of his time with those people. Jesus was both judging, he was giving people what they were due, care, protection, or concern. The tax collector who had been exiled from his own people but he's also bringing judgment on the religious elite whose worldview creates a system where if you are morally inferior to me, you deserve to be exiled. So Jesus is constantly walking back and forth. He's constantly who he is, what he does is both an exhilarating joy for some and an indictment of the brokenness of our world for someone else. And so this is how Jesus is able to say, this is the judgment in John 3. I have not come into the world to condemn the son of God. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read it. Verse 17 of John 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, here's the thing. What does it mean then to believe in the name of Jesus? What does it mean to believe in the son? If the son has revealed God, if he is showing the world what God is like, then when you look at that revelation of God, and you size your own life and your own community's life up against him, how do they compare? To believe on Jesus means that when you look at Jesus's life, you see God embodied. And to know that we are created in the image of God to rule the world as God himself would means that when we look at Jesus, if we see in Jesus the kind of life we long to have, we are going to believe that he is in fact the representative of God himself. But there are going to be people who will look at Jesus, will see the contradiction between Jesus and their own way of living, their own way of ruling, their own way of being, and they will choose to maintain their own way of living, ruling, and being and reject Jesus as claiming he's not from God, as claiming he is not truly embodying the way that God is like because people's mindsets and beliefs are going to be unhinged by the person of Jesus. And so notice what Jesus says in the very next verse of John 3. This is the judgment. 
that the light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus is saying the judgment is here. My life is God's righteous acts being revealed. My life is a judgment. I am making a judgment statement. Me as a person is the judgment. And in the end, those who do not like this version, those who do not like a a sacrificed lamb as the one who rules on the throne and do not want a life that is calling us to cruciform living, they are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life, as Paul will tell his own people in Acts chapter 13. So for the Lord to reveal his righteous acts, we're we're right back to Exodus chapter 15. We hear that the Lord blows with his wind and the sea covers the Egyptians. He just blows with his wind. And we know that the word is, is ruach. It means breath or wind, right? So when we go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and we read about one coming from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, we've we've looked at this passage several times. This is the heartbeat passage for how we are first introduced to the lamb in the book of Revelation, Um, right in chapter five. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I mean, we are talking about one coming in justice, one coming in judgment, one coming in righteousness who isn't going to judge by what he sees or decide disputes between this widow or this landlord or this person that's just been evicted. He's not going to decide disputes by what his ears hear, but listen, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now, this is so fascinating because we know from Revelation 1 that there is a sword protruding out of the mouth of Jesus. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. When it comes time to talk about judgment, We're talking about something protruding from Jesus. Similarly here, um, as to what we read in Exodus 15 with the Lord's breath, he blew with his wind and the sea covers them. But listen to what Jesus says in John 12. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Listen to this. (laughs) I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I didn't come to be the judge. Listen, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my word and does not receive my words has a judge. Ready? Here it is. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So here's what Jesus is saying. He has come in righteousness. The judgment has come. Jesus is the true representation of what God, who and and what God is like. And Jesus is the true representation of who and what human beings are supposed to be like. If we can look at him and see him, 
and repent from all of the ways we are aware of that our lives as individuals and as communities do not embody the life that Jesus lived. Then we will repent from those things and ask him for his grace and his mercy. But he is saying here that he did not come to judge the world. He's speaking the truth. And if people don't want to hear the truth, their own love for darkness rather than the light will prevent them from being able to receive the truth. I couldn't help but scratch my head last night in the debates when point blank questions were asked and the truth was evaded. And my question is, do we want the truth or do we want the propaganda or do we want to imagine that our side is always right? What is truth, right? Pilate posed that question to Jesus and didn't stick around long enough to get the answer. So what Revelation 15 is doing is it is highlighting for us who the Lord is. He's just and true in all his ways. And his faithful followers who have rejected the false and untrue ways and unjust ways of Rome and of the beast and refused to take the mark in order to preserve their own lives, these are the ones whose prayers mingled with fire to the sea of glass are going to be offered up to the one who can do something about it. And the plagues that are about to emanate from the tent of witness, from the tabernacle, from the temple, in heaven are now inseparably tied to the kind of cries for deliverance coming to the throne from the Lord's own people. That's what Revelation 15 is about. Revelation 16 will unleash the remaining full disclosed um, judgments that the Lord desires to pour out onto the earth, not because he doesn't love the earth, but because he's committed to justice. He's committed to giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And he will go out of his way to give time and time and time and time again opportunities for the world to see what truth and justice are like and to repent and to get on board with that. To plead with the Lord for his mercy, not for his judgment. But he wants them to rest, I'm sorry, not to not plead with for his mercy, not for his judgment, but to not want his anger, not want to be on the, on the, um, on the wrong end of what he's coming to introduce. And so I, as, I, as I think about who Jesus is and the song of the lamb that we are saying what? That when the Lord fully revealed himself, when his righteous acts were revealed, they were revealed in his willingness not to come and crush everyone in his path, but to show the world who he is really like. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he declared with finality, this is the kind of life I honor in the end. And this is how I want my own followers. I want their lives to be molded after my son who speaks the truth, who is the truth, who is just and true in every way that he handles life, who he responds to, how he responds. And Revelation 15 is doing a beautiful job of tying together that one great redemptive act of God in the Exodus with the works that Jesus has done in the gospel on the cross. In fact, even in Luke chapter nine, 
Jesus's death is spoken about as a second exodus. We might miss it in some of our English translations, but when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, two men are there talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus's departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, the word that we read translated departure is straight up the word for exodus. So they're speaking about his exodus. They're speaking about Jesus getting ready to be the Passover lamb. They're speaking about Jesus being the one who is going to deliver and ransom the oppressed people out from underneath the oppressor. And Jesus's very death on the cross was a judgment of the world. That when the world sees truth and justice, this is what it does with it. It's a, it's a judgment. Jesus doesn't have to come swinging a sword. Jesus judges the world when the world looks at him and judges him as being unfit for life. At that moment, the world judged itself. And that very reality is playing itself out and ultimately will play itself out. And this is why John is saying, do not follow that path. If you do, in the end, you're going to be on the wrong side of justice. So in this very heated political climate, in any conversation you're having with a friend, our calling as Christians is this. We pursue truth. And what that means, according to what Jesus is saying, is we not only love who Jesus is and who Jesus claims to be, that is a version of truth, but truth is also what we are willing to have revealed that is in the darkness in our own lives. Because if they are not matching, then we can say all day long that we love the truth, but in reality, we're lying. It's a tough call. This is very difficult, but this is what I noticed last night on the debates. Nobody wants to admit error. Nobody wants to admit weakness. Nobody wants to admit that maybe something they said or did or thought wasn't as perfect as they're trying to present it as being. And I know why, because the moment you do that in this culture, you're going to be eaten alive. But I'm telling you, that's what Babylon does. And I'm not calling America Babylon. I'm saying the ideologies are there. They're just there. And we need to be aware of them because as Christians, our calling in a political climate, our calling in a world of unrest is very, very different than what everybody else seems to believe is the answer. And I want us to be prepared, rooted in who Jesus is, who God is, and how he's revealed himself to be in Jesus so that we can be among those who don't take the mark, who don't, the number of its name, we've conquered the beast the way the lamb has. And that's encouraging and that's good news for the world. So that's all the time I'm going to take for this week. Thanks for tracking with me. I feel like my thoughts were a bit scattered and, and rambled today. I had a lot of notes down, wasn't exactly sure what order and what form they were going to come out. But um, if you've got questions or comments or thoughts, feel free to email me, unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks so much for those of you who support the podcast on a monthly basis. Um, would love the opportunity to meet some new of you, meet, meet um, new people as well, new supporters of the podcast. Follow the link at the end of the show notes. It'll take you to a place where you can um, support this podcast on a monthly basis. I'm trying to save up enough money to get a, 
a website uh, created and started for the podcast. That's maybe next on my agenda. A few more resources that I'd like to work through um, to be able to, to faithfully teach you as well as I can. So thanks so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.